Okay, if you have a, a Bible, turn to Romans uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> and today we're looking at uh, verse 18 to 32. Yeah, so this, uh, this section of Romans, it actually begins a um, kind of a, a subsection of the letter where uh, Paul shows us why we need the gospel. You know, why the righteousness that God gives is the only way uh, to be right with God. And so that's the um, topic of this section. Uh, it runs through to chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, but we're looking at the first part today. So chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Let's um, hear from God's word. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 16. I think that would be more helpful. Okay, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, this is the word of God. So let's pray 
Let's pray uh, for God's help um, in understanding it and applying it. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have uh, spoken in your word. And Father, we thank you that we can trust uh, every, uh, every word that you have spoken because it is yours and you are the God of truth. And Father, we need your uh, Holy Spirit uh, because our minds, uh, as we've just read, are, are darkened by sin and we can't see clearly uh, except for your light that you shine into our lives. And so we pray that you would do that now by enlightening our minds to your truth so that we might see uh, who you are more clearly uh, and that we might see ourselves more clearly. And we pray, Father, that as a result that we would, uh, that our minds would be renewed in your word, that we would know what your will is. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans uh, is all about the gospel of God. Okay, that's the theme of the book, the gospel of God. And uh, this passage that we have here before us today, this is the passage that shows us why we need the gospel. Okay, this is the passage that we need to understand, we need to grapple with, if we're to see why we need, why we so desperately need the gospel. And the reason we so desperately need the gospel is because without Jesus... God is right to be very angry with us. Okay, I'll say that again. Without Jesus, God is right to be very angry with you. See, that's what this passage is about. It's about God's anger, or well, the word that Paul uses is the wrath of God. Here's a section on the wrath of God, and this is a very confronting passage. Uh, this is a very uncomfortable passage. This is like... Uh, if you've ever gone to the doctor, I haven't had this experience, but I'm guessing it'll come one day. Uh, you go to the doctor and the doctor has to lay out before you a very serious diagnosis. You know, you have a serious health problem. The doctor has to tell you what's actually going on and it's extremely uncomfortable to listen to, but you need to hear it and you need to understand it because you won't understand the cure if you don't get the diagnosis right. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's diagnosing the problem with humanity. And the problem, as we see, is the wrath of God on us. Well, the problem of our sin that brings the wrath of God upon us. And so we're going to think about that today. We're going to think about three things that the passage tells us about God's wrath. We, we see the fact of it in verse 18. Then we see the reason for it in verses 19 to uh, 23, and then that last sec uh, section, verses 24 to 32, it gives us the evidence of God's wrath. Okay, so the fact, the reason, and the evidence. So look at the fact of God's wrath in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so the wrath of God, it is a topic that is very easily misunderstood uh, because when we hear the word wrath, you know, we, we think that's a bad thing. Uh, and if you look up a dictionary, the dictionary defines wrath as um, extreme, over-the-top anger. And it's kind of like when, uh, when Jasmine and Ruby turned up to the Royal Children's Hospital uh, about a month ago for Ruby's operation, 
when they arrived, there was a patient in the uh, entrance there just who had gone into absolute meltdown and was screaming at the top of their lungs, was swearing and yelling and hitting things. Very confronting scene. And that's how we think about wrath. We think about wrath as if it's, you know, over the top, out of control, completely irrational. Well, I'm here to tell you that God's anger is nothing like that. It's nothing like over the top, irrational, out of control. Uh, God's anger is actually his settled aversion to all that goes against his holiness. Or to put it another way, God's wrath is his displeasure towards sin. His displeasure towards sin. And so what, what God's wrath is, it's actually an expression of his righteousness. Okay? God is righteous in all of his ways. And therefore it is good and it is right that he would be angry about human wickedness. <clears throat> and if God wasn't angry about it, what would he be? He would be indifferent. He would be the kind of judge who just, you know, sees something and just shrugs his shoulders, you know, so. That itself would be evil, okay? Someone who, who knows something's evil and can do something about it, to be indifferent, that itself is evil. But see, God, he is righteous in all of his ways, and so therefore, he must be angry about human wickedness. And so you need to see God's wrath... When you think about it, think about it as an expression of his holiness, that he's holy and therefore he is against sin. And so it is his settled, just, personal uh, displeasure with sin. Now, the verse does say in verse 18 that it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that word all is very important because it means that God is angry with every sin, whether we think it's a problem or not. Okay, because, you know, from our perspective, some sins just seem like a bit of a, you know, shrug the shoulders over it. It doesn't seem a big deal. Uh, but God is angry toward all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And, uh, and, and the reason that is, is because he is holy. And this is something that I don't think we can fully grasp. We can't fully grasp just how holy God is. I don't think we can fully grasp how offensive our sin is toward him because we are sinful, and so we don't really quite get it. Uh, we can't get it while we're in a sinful state. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you, um, if you ever visit someone in uh, Leechville and you just say to them, um, how can you live with the smell? And they, you know, and they say, what smell? It's kind of how sin works in our lives. Sometimes, we, you know, we don't even realise how repulsive it is. Uh, we don't see how offensive it is because we're so used to it. Um, but see, to a holy God, sin is always foreign. It's like a, a new repulsive uh, smell. It's like, and, and it's a stench to God. He is repulsed by it. He is deeply offended by it because he is holy. And that means that, that every single person, unless they take refuge in Christ, are under God's anger. God is rightly angry with them. Now, the other thing verse 18 does say is that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And that word revealed, it is, it's in present tense, which just means 
that it is something that's happening right now. Okay, God's wrath is being revealed. It's, it's on display right now. And that's different to how the Bible mostly talks about God's wrath. The main way the Bible talks about God's wrath is something that will be revealed in the future, that there will be a final day when, when God will pour out his wrath upon all who have rejected him. And uh, that, that day will, it will be a day of judgment. Uh, and so if you flip over the page in Romans uh, 2 verse 5, uh, there, Paul goes on to talk about that future revelation of God's wrath where it will be a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So that's a future revelation. But here, verse 18 is talking about a present reality. This is something that's on display right now, something that will continue to be on display right up until that last day. That last day when God pours out his wrath in judgment, you know, everlasting punishment, until that day, his wrath is being revealed. And we'll come back and consider what that looks like uh, in the last point. But just for now, what we need to let sink in is how God sees human sin. Okay? There's nothing trivial about it. There's no lightheartedness here. This is very sobering. No, no wink, wink, nudge, nudge. None of that with God. Uh, he is rightly angry. And that's the fact of his wrath. Okay, the second thing we see, though, is the reason for it. And the issue here is, is it right for God to be angry with every sin? With every little sin, is it, is it right for God to be angry with all ungodliness and unrighteousness? That's what verses 19 to 23 are all about. And in this section, it's like Paul's anticipating an objection. Now, for him to say God is angry with all sin, you can imagine someone objecting and saying, Hang on a minute. What about the people who didn't know any better? Okay, what about the people who didn't know that God existed? What about the ones who didn't know what his law was? And so they, they didn't realise what they were meant to be doing. They didn't know they were sinning. What about those people? Surely he can't be angry with them. Or sometimes the way this um, question is put is, you know, what about that remote tribe uh, in the Amazon jungle who have never heard the Bible and probably never will? How can God be angry with them? They didn't know any better. What's the answer to that? Well, that's what these verses tell us. The answer that we have here is that everyone actually does know God. Everyone does know God. Everyone does know what is right and wrong, yet chooses to suppress that knowledge. And Paul hints at that in verse 18 by saying, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But then in verses 19 to 23, he unpacks that. What does it mean that people suppress the truth? And uh, he says there in verse 19, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them, uh, for God has shown them, uh, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, where? In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul's point, it's, it's the same as Romans, uh, sorry, Psalm 19. You know, Andrew read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the point there is that God has revealed himself plainly in creation. The things that are around us, you know, open your eyes, look out, look at the stars, look at, look how they shine for you. Uh, that's not right. Uh, and look, everyone has that, that access. 
everyone has access to that knowledge of God that he has revealed in creation. And there's so much uh, that we can actually know about God just by looking around. Uh, you know, for example, the fact that there is something, the fact that there are things to look at around, the fact that there is matter, that alone points to God. Because how did it get there? Okay, where did, where did anything come from? The fact that there's a something points to a someone. Okay, because the creation can't have arisen on its own. It can't create itself. That is illogical. Okay, there has to be someone. Someone who is eternal. Someone who is powerful. Someone who can be the first cause. And that's what we see in creation. Uh, that's one obvious thing. But... Then when you look at different aspects of creation, you can actually learn a lot about God. So for instance, think about the expanse of the universe. What does that tell us about God? If, you know, if there's a God who created, he must be pretty powerful. He must be pretty big. Uh, look at the, uh, the beauty of creation. You know, think of a, a magnificent sunset or a flower. What does that tell you about the maker? He must be an incredible artist. <clears throat> He must love beauty. Uh, the complexity of creation, what does, that, <clears throat> what does that tell you? He must be extremely intelligent. Now, when you take out a microscope and look into the, the things around us, you realise there's a lot going on there. Okay, more than we can understand. Uh, scientists are continually digging up things, looking into creation and, and realising just how complex it is. And we've really only scratched the surface. Uh, so the complexity of creation, it tells us that there is someone extremely intelligent who has put it all together. And uh, I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, when I was in uni, um, I studied um, nature tourism at uni, and I had to do this two-month research project on a plot of ground in a national park uh, with a research partner. And so we spent uh, quite some time there and... Uh, there was this moment in our research where we began to realise just how complex a simple ecosystem is. You know, just a little plot of ground in a in national park. And it started to dawn on us the way that uh, plants and insects and birds all interacted, the way they, they were interdependent. And we realised just how incredible everything is. And there was this moment where my research partner, he just blurted out, he goes, this is actually amazing. It's almost like someone, I don't know, put it all together in this amazing way. And, and I'll never forget when he said that because the irony was, uh, normally he was a fairly outspoken atheist. And just for this little moment, he just, it's almost like the truth broke through, looking at the complexity of um, creation. And then there's another aspect of creation, actually, that tells us a lot about God, right? And I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> Humanity, okay? Because we're created in, in God's image, and even though sin has marred that image, uh, we still have all of these traits in us that point to our maker. And uh, notably, uh, one that Paul will talk about in the next chapter, and that is the, the law of God written on our hearts, that deep down we know what is right and wrong. Okay, whenever there's moral outrage, whenever we get deeply upset about injustice, and we all do, everyone does, even atheists, everyone gets upset when over moral issues. 
Where does that come from? It's the law of God written on our hearts. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> but here we see the knowledge of God, it's, it's plain to everyone. Okay, It's in the things that have been made. And uh, we should note here, though, that that doesn't mean everything that can be known about God can be found out by looking at you know, trees and rocks and things. Uh, we can't know God's plan of salvation just by looking at a tree uh, or into the stars. Uh, but what we do have is enough knowledge presented to us so that every single person, or to put it another way, there is no person anywhere who is genuinely ignorant of God. There's not one. Uh, what can be known about God is plain, and uh, Paul caps that off by saying, so they are without excuse. Right? So it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what your upbringing was, you know, whether you went to Sunday school as a kid or not, it doesn't matter. The knowledge of God is plain to see, which means every single person is accountable for what they do with that knowledge. You're accountable for how you live in relation to God. Uh, so even that tribe deep in the Amazon, they've never heard the Bible, okay? but they are still accountable to God because they do know him. They know he exists, and therefore they are accountable when they sin. But here's the problem, right? What does every person do with the knowledge of God that's available to us in creation. What does everyone do? Well, Paul says we suppress it. We push it down, try to make it go away. And uh, if you look at verse 21 to 23, this is where he explains it. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their uh, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. And so he, what Paul is saying, he's saying that instead of you know, looking at creation and realising, okay, there's a, there's a God who's big and awesome and powerful, instead of worshipping that God, what does everyone do? Everyone says, I don't want to worship that God. And so they push that away. But what happens when you don't worship God? which is what God has created us to do, what happens? We still have to worship. Okay? We are worshippers by design, and so if we don't worship the true and living God, what will happen? We will find something else to worship. That's what these verses are saying. Uh, we become idol worshippers. And Paul talks about people worshipping images, uh, like um, man and birds and so on, and there are some cultures that literally do that. You, know, you go to some cultures and there's statues everywhere, and people um, worship those things. But what is the heart of idolatry? What is, what is the real underlying issue behind idolatry? What it is, it's, it's taking something other than God and making that the object of your highest affection and your deepest hope. That's behind idolatry. It's to make something your highest affection, the thing you love most, the thing that you put your hope in. And our Western culture, we don't have statues. You know, people don't bow down to statues and things. But that, does that mean we're not idolaters? Well, not at all. Western culture has just as many idols as, as any other culture. You know, we worship things like money, possession, sex, sport, uh, pleasure. 
and many other things. And what we see is that we seek after those sorts of things with the kind of devotion that is rightly supposed to be directed toward God. That's how you know we're idol worshippers because we seek after things. You know, we, you know, we don't just follow a sports team. We, we literally worship it. And we do that with all kinds of things. And so does God have reason to be angry with everyone? The answer is he does. Because he created everyone to be in a relationship of knowing him, loving him, enjoying him, worshipping him. And what has humanity done? We'll worship anything other than God. We'll love anything other than God. And therefore God is right to be angry with everyone. Okay, so we know what God's wrath is. That's his displeasure towards sin. We know why he is right to be angry with everyone, because everyone rejects him and worships something else other than him. But what about the evidence? Where is the evidence for God's wrath today? Remember, verse 18 said that God's wrath is being revealed. Okay, right now, it's on display in the world. Where do you see it then? Where do you see evidence of God's wrath uh, against uh, humanity? And that's what verses 24 to uh, 32 are about. Uh, This is the evidence for God's wrath. and, And according to these verses, the place we see it is in how messed up society is. We see it in the disorder in people's lives and the disorder uh, in cultures. And the way Paul gets that across is this key phrase where he says, God gave them up. Three times he uses that phrase, God gave them up. Uh, So verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Uh, Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. And then down in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind uh, to do what ought not to be done. So this is how God's wrath is being revealed today, that he gives people up to sin. And what that implies is that God's normal activity in the world is one of restraining evil. He restrains evil in the world. He restrains sin in hearts. And uh, that's one of his uh, acts of mercy on a sinful and fallen world. This is a world that's rejected him, and yet he still has mercy in that he restrains evil. And later on in Romans, we'll see you know, some of the ways God does that. But I know it's hard to imagine, but this world would be far worse than it actually is if not for God's restraining grace, that he puts a restraint on evil. But what we see here in this this God giving them up is that there does come a point where where people, where societies pursue after idolatry so much, there comes a point where God removes that restraint. He gives them up, which is a way of saying that God says, okay, you don't want to worship me, you want to go your own way, fine, have it your way. And he lets people go. And what happens? They go further into idolatry, become more enslaved in idolatry. Now, one way to think about this, imagine that there's a a couple who have a young adult son. And this young adult son is a very troubled soul. 
Uh, he gets into all kinds of trouble all the time. Uh, he can't hold a job down. He's prone to drinking too much. Uh, dabbles with substance abuse. He, he always seems to be getting into bad relationships. Uh, so much trouble. But his parents care deeply for him. And so they're always intervening into his life. They're always uh, trying to arrange a new job for him. They're always paying his bills, making him meals. Uh, they even sometimes sneak into his pantry and they take all that alcohol and things and they throw it out. And see, the son, he constantly gets angry with them. He constantly accuses them of being bad parents, of not caring for him, of interfering in his life, treating him like a baby. And see, this goes on for years and years. And eventually, his parents just can't take it anymore. It's literally killing them. And so there comes a day when they have to make this very hard decision that they're not going to intervene anymore. And so they just say to your son, well, their son, sorry, but you're on your own now. And they leave him alone. And what happens? His life unravels. See, that's the picture here. That's how God's wrath works or is working in the world on people, on societies today. And the way Paul describes it in these verses, in verse 24 to 32, it's in this idea of disorder. Okay, when God gives people up, what happens? Disorder. Uh, there's a disorder in desires and a disordering of relationships. And if you look at all of the things that are mentioned in these verses, that's what they're all about. Disordered desires that bring disordered relationships. Uh, so one example uh, there in the first one where it says God gave them up, he, he talks about uh, the disordering of um, sexual desires. So verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, uh, because they exchanged the truth of God um, for a lie. Now, so what's this talking about? It's talking about sexual immorality. And this only makes sense if you understand what sex is all about, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, it's not a sermon on sex, but sex is part of God's good creation. He designed it. He actually designed it to be enjoyable. Okay, but when God created sex, he made it to, to work according to a particular order. And God made it to function in one context only, when it's between a man and a woman who have entered into a lifelong covenant called marriage. That's the only context for sex. That's how God designed it to function properly. That's God's order, his created order. But see, what, ha what happens is that sin takes something that is good, something that is natural, something that God designed to be enjoyed, and what does sin do? It disorders it. Okay, it disorders it. And, what, and so what happens is you have, well, Paul mentions lust. What is lust? Lust is a disordered desire. It's a desire for something good, but then turns it and makes it a disordered desire so that it goes outside of God's boundaries and causes all kinds of problems. Uh, lust leads to all kinds of degrading and enslaving uh, sexual practices. Now, it's actually in this context, do you see, that then Paul goes on to talk about a particular example of uh, sexual disorder in verses 26 to 27. 
And th this actually is one of the main passages in the Bible that addresses the issue of homosexuality. But the reason Paul brings it up, I think you can see that from the context, the reason Paul brings up this issue at this point is because it is an obvious example of disorder, a disordered desire, a disordered relationship. And you can actually see that where he even says uh, that such practices are contrary to nature, which is a way of saying it goes against God's order in creation, God's, the way God designed uh, sex to function. And so that, that, that is a way of saying God clearly considers homosexual acts as sinful. Uh, in the same way that he considers all sexual acts that are outside of his order as being wrong. And I know there's nothing more offensive that I could say than that in our culture today. Okay, nothing more offensive. But as you can see, that is the plain teaching of the Bible. Okay, it's written there uh, in black and white. And so, you know, just a side issue, we, we can't change our opinion on this. I know some of you feel the pressure from our culture change your position, you know, affirm homosexual practice. I know uh, probably we all feel that, but this is what God's Word teaches. And in fact, verse 32, right at the end, it actually says that one of the most blatant acts of rebellion against God is actually to approve of something that God says is sin. So that, just keep that in mind. But here's the thing with this. Is there any of us here who for a moment think that we are somehow morally superior because we don't struggle with homosexual tendencies? If there's anyone here who thinks like that, then the third example of disorder that Paul gives will absolutely smash that to pieces. See, look at the, the third example of disordered desires that lead to disordered relationships. So verse 28, uh, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Okay, let that one sink in. Slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, heartless, ruthless. Now I wonder, I wonder if we should do a show of hands. <laughs> I think it's a safe one. Is there anyone here who can honestly say, I have never done any of those things in that list. Okay, didn't think so. See, we can all see that every single one of us, our hearts are what? They are disordered. Okay, disordered desires, disordered relationships. And so what does this mean? It actually means that the problem with humanity is the problem that is inside every single one of us in our hearts. So if we see things like gossip coming out of our lips or if we have boastful thoughts, that's what it says, you know, it's just being proud. 
No boasting, thinking you're better than someone else, if that ever happens. Or if we're ever uh, selfish, uh, which is what's behind that heartless and ruthless. Now, if we ever say something mean about someone else, what's behind that? It's this core problem. That is what's wrong with the world, and that is rejecting God. Okay, Kicking God off his rightful place and saying, I will rule my own life. Okay, which is a way of saying we worship ourselves. We put ourselves at the centre. And when you do that, you have a whole lot of disordered desires, which leads to disordered relationships. Whenever you put yourself at the centre, and so does other people, what happens? Clash. Okay, God was meant to be at the centre, everyone worshipping around him. And yet we've, disordered, we've displaced God from the centre and therefore all of these things take over our hearts. And so we can actually say that in our natural fallen state, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And that means that God would be entirely right to be angry with every single one of us. Okay? But here's the good news. There's some good news. The whole reason Jesus went to the cross, the whole reason was to actually do something about our disordered hearts. And the way he did something about our disordered hearts was by doing something about God's wrath that is rightly against us. See, when he, when he went to the cross and when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know, in that very moment, the wrath of God that was meant for us was poured out on him. He endured the punishment that we deserved. He willingly wanted to do that out of love for us. Do you see that? And it just means that if you are trusting in Jesus now, it means that God's wrath against you has been turned away and it's been satisfied in Jesus, in his death for you. So that means the one thing you can be absolutely sure of right now is that if you are trusting in Jesus, God is no longer angry with you. The book of Romans will go on to say that God delights in you in the same way that he delights in his own son because he gives you the righteousness of Christ. See, that's the good news. And here's the thing, when you know that he has done that for you, when you know that Jesus has done that for you, that begins to reorder your heart. It turns you back to want to worship God. When you know Christ has done that for you, you actually want to center your life on God again. And the other thing about this, do you know if God can rescue a disordered sinner like me, and if God can rescue a disordered sinner like you, then surely he can rescue anyone. Surely he can rescue anyone. So that means that no one is off limits. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. It means we reach out to everyone, despite how disordered we might think they are. Because Christianity is not for good people. It's for the worst. It's for those who, who, who can say in their hearts, I am the worst of sinners, and yet God had mercy on me. You know, we just sang before, our sins, they are many. That's so true. His mercy is more. That's so true. That's good news. And so we have that good news for the world. And I need to say this to end, and that is, 
If there is anyone here today who are not trusting in Jesus, what is the clear message from this passage for you? What is the clear message? It's that right now God is angry with you. And he will remain angry with you unless you embrace what he offers to you in the gospel, unless you take hold of Jesus. Because only in Jesus is God's wrath turned away. So come to Jesus, take hold of him. It's a free gift, salvation in Christ. Okay, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so troubled by the, the reality of this uh, fallen, sinful world, uh, not just because we see all of the chaos and confusion and disorder, but we see that in our own hearts. And uh, none of us uh, here can, can boast how much better we are. Uh, we can never look down on a fellow sinner because we're in the same boat. And we know, Lord, that you are right to be angry with us because we have sinned in so many ways and we have put other things at the centre of our lives. We have worshipped idols, uh, even though we know what's right. Uh, and we pray you would forgive us for that, Lord. But we thank you that the gospel is that for all those who put their faith in Christ, that your anger is turned away. And so we rejoice in that. And we can't fathom uh, what a wonderful gift that is but we know we have all of eternity to marvel at what Christ has done. So may we do that even now, even each day that we would wake up in the morning and think how amazing it is that you love us despite our sin, but you love us because of Christ. And so may we rejoice in him. We pray it in his name. Amen.